Hello and welcome to episode two of the Precision Microcast with Josh Hacko and Adam Demuth. Today's episode, we will be talking about the history of gauge blocks, some precision problems Josh and I had, and a interesting two-axis lathe from Citizen called the VCO3. For people new to the show, this is going to be a fortnightly release schedule, and each show is going to consist of a, a revolving list of segments. The segments can be anything from history of precision to interesting new machines, problems Josh and I have had, and uh, we're, we're hoping to populate that list of segments as we grow. To start off our history of precision segment, we'll talk about gauge blocks. So why was the gauge block invented? Uh, Well, so back in the late 1800s, most factories had set gauges. Like, uh, so if you wanted a 102 millimeter gauge, you had a block of material, which was 102 millimeters long. And that was controlled by uh, a very nice set of micrometers. Micrometers at the time calibrated gauges, not the other way around. And Carl Johansson in Sweden was working in a rifle company for Remington and saw this as a problem. And his interest wasn't necessarily traceability, but the sheer volume of gauges. Uh, they would have thousands of various lengths of gauges to test slot widths. And, and uh, just keeping track of all of them was becoming a real problem. And so he kind of had this idea of stacking blocks and in various increments together to create a universal set of gauges, which can become any size. Uh, Little did he know at the time how big of an implication it'd have on traceability and the way modern measurements are conducted. So more or less, he moved away from having a single calibrated uh, gauge to having a set of gauge blocks that you can modify and ring together as we now know, to develop a set of um, gauges that you can use throughout production, right? Yeah, with the the original intent of being faster development of gauges, since you didn't have to find a piece of material and heat treat it and grind it and lap it, you could just put one together within a few minutes. And that cut down on the gauge room work at this rifle factory, which I believe was Remington. And... uh, Oh, I'm sorry, Carl Gustav. Uh, but uh, what's interesting is they didn't quite understand that ringing was going to be the phenomena it was. Uh, originally, there was no mention or concern of ringing, and that was once the lapping had got to a point where the blocks were flat enough that they started to notice this this phenomenon where they stick together. And there's a really, really interesting photo I found. These are very big gauge blocks. I would say they're probably 200 millimeters in length, but they're rung together and the lower gauge block is holding 200 pounds of weight and they're suspended from the ceiling. And so 
that that rung surface is supporting that much weight and I, I think that's really cool yeah that's that's fascinating and the 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 ringing force is we don't really know why it exists right yeah that's what i found interesting is i've read a lot on the subject of ringing and uh on a machinist level a lot of people will cite uh atmospheric differences or oil films uh if you get into a more scientific research level it's uh it looks like it's some kind of molecular attraction that's doing it um but i think it's one of those things nobody has really thrown a lot of attention and effort at it but it's it's kind of weird how for something that's such a big part of everything that gets made how nobody's really gotten down to the brass tacks of it yeah it's fascinating that we don't actually know the real reason and and because a lot of the a lot of the re- like information resource that we're talking from is uh, in this Michitoyo document. Absolutely fantastic reading, and I, I think Adam can link it in in the uh, in the Instagram. And um, they cite intermolecular forces or intermo- intermolecular attraction, and that kind of throws me back to high school when doing chemistry and physics and talking about Van der Waals forces, and it's pretty insane because the scale at which those forces interact on is the atomic scale so it's it's far below anything that you actually experience as a machinist or as uh, an engineer and that's what is daily used in this very rudimentary on the outset at least very rudimentary uh, measuring method yeah and one of the things i'm glad the article or the i guess it's more of a a insert under one of their catalogs brought up was the gauge film thickness uh so there's they they can reliably measure around 0.01 microns of thickness when you do a gauge block ring and uh one of the shops i worked at the guy who ran the qc lab he was adamant that your block not be more than four blocks your block stack up and that was always why and i I think most guys rolled his eyes rolled their eyes at him but uh his background was he was uh the some like end of line gauge calibrator for temkin so this shop was in canton ohio and literally shared the same exit as temkin and they specialized in cylindrical grinding of bearing housings so most of their talent came across the street from Timken, not necessarily for more money. They paid well, but it was actually uh, the guys at Timken had to work some awful swing shift where you do a couple shifts on days, then afternoons and nights. And most guys just wanted a straight day shift. Um, so I, I was exposed to a lot of really, really interesting people from that. And uh, this guy was definitely one of them. And so he went so far and equipped the tool room with, so most gauge block sets, you'd have a one, two, three, four, or three and four inch block. Uh, If you needed a five, you'd ring a four and a one and then add whatever decimals. Yeah. Uh, To limit the number of rings, he actually had bought in a supplement set of one inch 
spaced blocks. So we had five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and because um, a lot of the stuff they were doing was quite big. But uh, I, I always found that interesting. The the expense the company went to to limit block stack ups because those larger one inch increment blocks I doubt were cheap. So that number boggles my mind. Point um, oh one micron and it, like that's 10 nanometers so that's what one fiftieth of the wavelength of like light red light i think is around 500 i could i could be wrong on the actual color of light but i know that the range is between 300 and 700 nanometers for light so you're ta- you're splitting the wavelength of light um further and further down when you talk about these intermolecular forces and the ring film like the space between the gauge blocks Surely at that point, uh, it's more important to have temperature stability than it is to chase this 0.01 micron, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think temperature probably comes before anything with precision work. Um, and I, I think the the scale of the measurement is why a lot of guys didn't take him too seriously. But his approach was, let's do everything as right as pro- possible. And so I, I can't fault him for that, but uh, it, it's a, I don't want to say insignificant, but for most of the work I do and probably for you, it's it's never going to be a big enough number to worry no, about. Yeah. I mean, the, probably the closest um, that I've gotten to those kind of numbers is I made um, a test block uh, from hardened steel where I'll put this up on the Instagram where I had steps milled in. So you can, if you can imagine a staircase, more or less steps milled in. Oh, you did the, the fleece. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, I had two micron steps and then one of the steps on a different plane intersected two steps. And, uh, you can really quickly see, uh, the difference between the steps by the direction of the tool marks. And, um, because mm-hmm. if you have no tool marks in one step or at least tool marks in one direction in one step and then tool marks in another direction that's uh, orthogonal to that then you can safely say that they're on different planes um, and I had one of these tool marks intersect two of these two of these steps so it was within a micron and that's probably the closest I got to really pushing it and that's one micron you know <laughs> um some of the biggest struggles I have in precision cutting in the mills is Z depths like that. Uh, those could be those could be very big challenges. Uh, that that is an impressive feat. Yeah, Z depth is really finicky because you have axial runout of your spindle that can sometimes be a micron itself. Um, but then you have this very large, I guess it depends on the kinematic frame of the machine as well, but you have this very large stack up. You have your spindle and then how the spindle is held to the Z-axis, um, then how the Z-axis is held to the frame. And so you, you're just stacking up all these errors, but seemingly to no end because um, the faster you turn up the spindle, the spindle warms up, obviously, and then that grows, that uh, imparts a force on the whole Z-axis column, which 
stretches and pushes and deforms the rest of the kinematic frame. So, yeah, it's really hard to understand these numbers because I look at this Mitutoyo catalog and I see, or at least not catalog, but pamphlet, I see 0.01 micron and I'm just thoroughly impressed that we've reached that level as humanity. You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, <laughs> we're almost playing God <laughs> at that, at that, at that level. Yeah. And, uh, what I find interesting is how early and how quickly Johansson mm. was able to hit pretty high levels of precision. Um, so his initial goal for his first sets of gauge blocks he was selling out of his house was one micron tolerance on each individual block. And the, uh, the, the spacing was 0.01 microns, which probably that's probably a little crude in terms of today's standards. Like I think even the, the loosest set of gauge blocks you could buy is much tighter than a, a micron tolerance. Um, but one of the things I find interesting is how he was inspecting his, his early gauge blocks and he built what we would call a super micrometer or a bench micrometer. And it's actually really clever. What he did is he took a standard zero to 25 millimeter uh, micrometer and he put, looks like about a hundred millimeter in diameter thimble on it. And so what that allowed him to do is get a much higher resolution. So he could, he can now see small, small differences on the vernier, uh, in size and when you're chasing high accuracy it really comes down to the resolution of your measurements and how much greater it is than your tolerance you're trying to achieve another thing that i wanted to uh, mention about this article was the materials that are currently used today in gauge block manufacture so johansson obviously used a hardened steel back then i don't think carbide was um yeah, very readily available. Actually, I'm not even sure when carbide started being commercially available, but safe to say they were hardened steel. That's a that's a good future subject. Yeah, yeah that's a good future subject indeed. Um, but nowadays, and you've had a lot more exposure to this than I have, but nowadays we use a whole host of materials from carbide to ceramic to different types of hardened steels. Um, yeah, you, even within steel, there's a couple options. Yes. So m- maybe maybe you can enlighten me as to why you would choose the different material types. Uh, well, it, it, it really comes down to a wear case for a lot of people. The carbide and ceramic will wear less, but on the trade-off for that is they chip easier. Um now, you could say, oh, just, you know, don't mishandle your gauge blocks, you'll be fine. But a lot of people do practically use gauge blocks for things like slipping into keyway slots to check size quickly. Um, I don't have the luxury of that. I, I only have two sets of gauge blocks. One's for setting sign plates, the other's for measurements. So I, I'm never going to risk damaging my gauge blocks doing that. But in a lot of shops, it's it works if you have the if you have like a spare set, you can devote to that. Uh, so in that application, a brittle 
gauge block material would be no good. Um, steel's probably your way to go. Uh, and then some of the other stuff you see is the high wear ceramics would be like your mastering set. They would more or less stay in your QC room and all other gauges would be compared to them. And then once a year that goes out to be calibrated to NIST. Um, I see some people using ceramics on the shop floor, uh, maybe to set a super micrometer to or stuff like that. Um, and the, all the shops I've worked in, those were always done with high accuracy steel or carbide, depending on what your material you're grinding was. So uh, if you were doing carbide punches, you'd probably be using carbide gauge blocks. Uh, if you're doing steel spindle housings, you're using steel gauge blocks. Uh, the idea being that your gauges and your material are on the same temperature curve. So if it's 71 and a half degrees or 20.5 C in your shop, your gauges are a little bit bigger, but the parts you're measuring in your gauge, when they both cool down, they're both still relatively the same size was the idea. Uh, whereas if you have a ceramic gauge, which didn't move nearly as much as your steel part you're grinding, uh, when the steel part cools down, it's much shorter uh, and your ceramic gauge is still the same height, roughly. So I always found that kind of interesting is, is using the gauge block material that best suits what you're working on. You touch on a really important thing, which is that uh, it's, it's actually a very important concept about all measurement, which is that all measurement, unless you are in, you know, um, NIST or some governing body that defines measurements, but all measurements are comparative. And uh, often gauge blocks are the, the local comparison to the measurement. Uh, so if you yes. work in a shop that, as you said, works with ceramics, it makes sense to have a ceramic, or at least a, um, works with materials with a similar temperature uh, expansion gradient as ceramic, it makes sense to use ceramic gauge blocks. Um, the, the one other thing that I picked up on in this article was that ceramics don't, um, they don't corrode, they don't rust. And I guess neither do carbide as well. But uh, if, if you did have the luxury to spend that money on a ceramic set, you probably wouldn't have to worry about corrosion in a shop environment. That's the only thing that I can really think of. Well, well back back into steel, um, a lot of the the big brand in the U.S. is Starrett Weber, and they're made up near me. Uh, and their steel is what's called chromium carbide, and it's it's a very high carbide laden steel and very high chromium. Uh, and then a lot of the other choices are fifty two one hundred steel, I believe, and both of those are very rust prone. Um, it, as long as you're running a reasonably temperature moderate shop with humidity control, you're not really going to have a rust problem, in my opinion. But back to like you know, I was saying some shops use them a little cruder, might be like a repair shop on a shipyard next to the mm. sea. Yeah, that could be an issue. <laughs> Maybe it's a good case to run oil in your shop as well. Um, nothing rusts. Nothing ever rusts. Cutting oil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
we when we, we my factory is is maybe 500 to yeah about 500 meters from the beach and when we first started moving machines in we bought a dehum, dehumidifier that was like one of the first things we bought and i quickly found out that it was completely useless for the intention of preventing rust in the shop because the oil mist that coats every single surface just lightly um, <laughs> meant that nothing ever rusted mm-hmm. ever <laughs> and nothing was ever clean so I had to use a uh, lens wipe on my laptop's video camera this morning so I I could be a little clearer in picture uh, just everything it, it's not even noticeable you don't see it by the eye but it, it, if your phone's laying on the bench and you go to take a picture of something all of a sudden it's very blurry um and I have pretty good high CFM uh, oil mist extraction on my one machine, and mm. it's still an issue. So, For me, I think um, most of the oil mist that comes into my shop comes from when I open the doors and um, spray off parts. Even though the, the actual extractor is still running, it's impossible for it to with, withdraw all of the mist. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's where it all comes from for me. Uh, I, I switched up a lot of my coolant nuts to prevent bling off, and uh, I don't run high-pressure coolant. It's it's when the, the air blows a, a part and it's sitting down in a hole and it comes shooting up out. Anyway, back on gauge blocks. Yeah, back on gauge blocks, yeah. Um, another interesting thing that Mr. Toyo article talked about and this is kind of back in the inception of these gauge blocks was uh the the conversion of a lap of a of a sewing machine into a lapping machine i found that interesting as well mainly because the time frame uh clothes were a much more substantial purchase uh set of pants was you know a multi-year purchase and they were priced as such. And so a good household would have a sewing machine to keep their clothing in repair. And uh, my mom was a quilter and quite fond of her sewing machines. And I suspect if my dad took the sewing machine and uh, ripped it apart to lap and make shiny pieces of metal, I don't think that would have gone well. And so I'm, I'm a little surprised he got away with that. But yeah, he, he modified his wife's sewing machine to lap these gauge blocks. Um, and I, I haven't really found a picture of that, which is kind of frustrating. But I, I suspect he had a, a lapping plate, which was oscillating up and down, is the only thing mm-hmm. I could figure, and fed the faces into that. But It's possible that it was um, might have been spinning as well to develop to... Uh... Two degrees of motion. Oh, um, well, yeah. That's the only thing that I could have thought about. Because, yeah, sewing machine, from what I understand, I'm not an expert in sewing machines. But sewing machine goes up and down. And you'd want some sort of rotary motion to, to make it as random as possible. But no amount of randomness, I think, would have cured um, the wife's anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess to wrap it up... Uh, and to maybe wrap a conclusion onto our talk about gauge blocks. Nowadays, gauge blocks are used as comparative measurements within local sort of settings. But how are those gauge blocks that 
we buy as consumers, how are they calibrated? Because I know there's heaps of calibration agencies all around the world, but what sort of methods do these places use? So most of the people I've dealt with that are in calibration, they're mastering them to another set of gauge blocks yet again. And then their gauge blocks go to NIST and they're, they're mastered to light at some point. Uh, so our, our gauge blocks, they're a practical unit of length. The real defining unit of length is actually set by light. Um, that's not readily available due to the cost of light-based measuring for a lot of folks. So gauge blocks, as expensive they are, are the, the low-cost solution. Um, <clears throat> but that's um, back to mastering to other blocks. Uh, an old QC guy I worked with got to tour uh, Stara Weber once, and he was up there looking at how they ran their their air system in the lab to get floor to ceiling temperature gradients under control. But one thing he noticed there as well is material matching the mastering set. So if it's a carbide set, they're mastering to carbide or ceramic to ceramic. And he picked up on that. Even in an environment where floor to ceiling temperature gradient was extremely low and it never really moved off of 20C. In the Mitsutoyo catalog, there is one option to buy your own automatic gauge block interferometer. Oh, I bet that's cheap. Uh, yeah, it looks like a, a time machine. <laughs> um, and I just wonder, maybe either of us will one day have shops big enough that we can afford those. <laughs> So in this next segment, uh, we've titled it My Precision Problem, and we'll talk about precision issues that we've both had in our workshops and how we've solved them. And this might throw some light on some interesting areas of precision that uh, might affect all of you guys that you might not even know. Uh, so I might start it off um, for me. My precision problem has been going on for quite a while. As many of you might know, if you follow me on Instagram, I've been working with Timascus. And um, Timascus is not a material that lends itself towards precision in any regard. It's made out of three separate alloys of titanium. And um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't hold tolerance quite well. And it is shipped in a state that has... Um, in a raw material state that has a lot of internal stress in the material and uh, it's it's difficult to work with and like like the smart product development team that we are we decided to make the most complicated and highly precise components out of it so it presents a lot of challenges in the manufacturing um, process to develop precision into into this into these parts so my biggest problem in the last maybe six months has been creating flatness in Timascus. Uh, so I've thought about grinding and I've thought about lapping and for the longest time I was just lapping by hand. I was lapping these three quarter bridges and these main plates, the two, I guess, part numbers that I'm making. I was just lapping them by hand. Um, 
which works, but it's very slow and it introduces some other issues, which is, uh, yeah, the, the other issues are, you have problems with uh, operator control. So if, if the one person is lapping by hand, it's never truly the same as another person who's lapping the same part by hand. You can put pressure in different ways and you can teach that out of someone, but it's very difficult. And uh, if there's a way to automate it, surely that's the way forward. So the solution to my problem was looking into generating flatness within the machine. And um, I talked with a bunch of people and looked at sort of the best ways to do this. One idea was ball milling and uh, having a very small step over with a fairly medium sized ball, you can generate pretty flat surfaces because what you're doing is you're copying the machine kinematics onto the material. Uh, especially if you don't move the Z, as we've mentioned, you can, you, can really, you can really just copy one single axis into the material. So like an X axis or a Y axis in a straight line, you can copy that flatness into a material and um, I tried it, but the, again, I ran into the same problem, very, very long cycle times. What, uh, what ball diameter and step over out of curiosity? It was a three millimeter ball with a, from memory, I think it was a 10 micron step over and uh, as the finishing pass. Holy moly. Yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was quite small. Um, the the actual depth of cut was very small as well, so I could run it really quick. It was about four meters a minute. Um, and what I did was I kicked the part up on about 30 degrees. So I was using the side of the ball. So it, it, mm, it worked. It's always a nice trick. Yeah, it's always a good trick. So technically it was still three axis, um, but it was just the cycle time. The cycle time killed me. And uh, I looked for other methods and another method was grinding didn't really experiment with that too much. I wasn't very fond with grinding titanium in a, in a machine that uses oil as a coolant. Um, I've never had a fire and I don't want to start now. <laughs> and uh, then it, that led me to uh, fly cutting. And fly cutting, I think, and touch wood, I've been using this method for the past two or three weeks, has given me fantastic results. So. The reason why I want flatness is because the parts do end up getting lapped for a mirror, just purely for surface finish. And it's much easier to um, get a mirror into something that's already quite flat. And the fly cutting method I used was PCD tooling, which was completely new to me and completely new to Dixie as well <laughs> in, in titanium. Apparently they didn't, they weren't too comfortable um, recommending the tool to me but it worked and the beautiful thing about it is that I can do a single pass in the diameter of the part that I'm doing a single pass that covers uh, the whole part so it introduces really really good flatness and thankfully my machine has quite a well trammed spindle so I don't have to worry about nod too much in in the uh, in the machining process um, are you going all the way across so a cross has cross hatch is generated or are you is your diameter of the fly cutter bigger than your watch part and you're just going till the cutting edge comes off uh the second option yeah so 
the, the cutter is 38 millimeters in diameter and my part is 37.3 millimeters in diameter, which is very fortunate. Um, and so I just go uh, in X over the part until I reach the center of the part and I lift up from there. So I, I, I can obviously go all the way across, but it does, um, it does smear in Timascus. In brass, it actually works quite nicely. But in Timascus, it tends to smear. I'm not sure why, and I'm sure someone will tell me why, but um, that's, that's the way I solved my flatness problem in a really difficult to machine material. That's pretty interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, I guess, is I, you know, I hadn't thought about the internal stresses when, from what I understand, that Timascus is just kind of artisanally hand forged together. Yes, it's. Um... So I, I, you know, it's probably not a wildly consistent billet when it comes to you. Um, is there anything you can do to relieve stresses in that, or is it just kind of the nature of the beast? I think it's the nature of the beast. I did like thermally cycle. Yeah, it. I did. I did one test that's, about. Um, that's unfortunate. Yeah, very unfortunate. <laughs> I think it comes down to the fact that uh, you have three different alloys with different mechanical properties, even though they're slightly different, but they're still different. All trying to pull each other apart. And then the other thing that kind of stuck out to me was using what all call an advanced cutting edge, not just carbide, some kind of diamond-like material uh, in titanium. Because uh, I, I make knife parts, and most of those are titanium. For most part, not a lot of surfacing, but, uh, you know, I do have a few parts where I spend five, ten minutes ball milling on a profile, and uh, I wouldn't mind maybe going to something that I could take advantage of my higher RPM spindle and and get a little longer ball life out of it. And uh, so that's kind of interesting that you're able to do that with your fly cutter. That's right. So from what I understand, and again, I'm no expert, should talk to someone like Marvin, who's got some experience or at least a little bit more experience than I do um, with using PCD in titanium. But from what I understand is that PCD wears extremely slowly in titanium and is not really affected by cutting speed. So the higher the cutting speed, um, the the wear profile is not correlated. It's not um doesn't match. So you can end up, you know, uh, surfacing at forty thousand RPM and still maintain the same tool life, which is a massive advantage. You know. Have you done any ball milling with PCD and titanium? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> I'm I'm just curious, like on a on a three D surface knife handle, how mm. reflective I could make it. Technically, I could. The fly cutter has um, the inserts have a, a one millimeter radius, <laughs> so I could use the radius of the fly cutter to step up, but I don't think it would be very um, <laughs> versatile or rigid for that matter. I I think it's it's interesting that you're going down that route. The uh, fly cutter you bought certainly looks interesting. Um, it's very big compared to your your spindle uh, tool diameter, um, so kind of kind of unnerving looking. It's a lot of even aluminum, a lot of rotating inertia, I'd imagine, but uh, very very nice finishes, I'd imagine. That's right, yeah. So, what was your precision problem? Uh, 
is a completely imprecise process, which was folding fabric and feeding it into sewing machines. Uh, to do this, uh, a couple different names for it, binders or bias tape makers are traditionally used. And these are hand-folded, silver-soldered pieces of metal um, made by a, like, a, it's in a company I admire. It's been around for a while, you know, kind of family-owned. Um, but the, they hand-make these binders, and they can only make 25 a week, and they're very expensive, $400 a piece. Um, and my customer is an offshoot of Superb Industries. The owner of Superb's son has a company that does manufacturing with textile goods. Uh, so they mainly focus on things that have to be made in America. And they do pretty well with it because there, there is a lot of stuff government spending wise which has to be sewn in the USA. And uh, that's kind of where they focus. But the issue was they now have a contract for mask and it's like some obscene number, I think 10 million. And in order to scale that up, they needed several hundred of the sewing guides. <clears throat> and they looked at buying and they bought a handful of the commercially available ones, but at 25 a week output, that was never going to be an option long-term as this scaled. But then the other thing they found is the handmade nature is that each sewing setup was a little different. Um, a lot of tweaking, a lot of adjusting, a lot of tension setting. And they knew they would be pulling their hair out trying to tune in each one of these sewing feeders to each sewing machine. And that if anything changed, there was just going to be a lot of... In our world, you know, it'd be like a toolmaker having to babysit a press instead of a press operator just running it. Uh, in their world a seamstress is going to have to be hanging around that sewing machine all day instead of just a, you know, a sewer. And so they wanted to try to get a more reliable process. And we did that through precision machining. We basically, I made a 3d model of this pretty complex geometry and kind of treated it like a mold and had a top and bottom half and merged the two together. And we were able to get the same geometry, but now in precision parts. And what that did is each feeder works identically. Now, there's still some variables at play. Uh, elastic tension, the material tension of the fabric. There seems to be almost like a grain effect. If the, the weave of the fabric isn't uh, parallel and perpendicular to the cut, like if it's skewed a few degrees... That seems to have some weird effects on how it tracks. So a host of issues, but they are now able to rule out the feeder actually being one of them because they're so consistent machine to machine to machine. And so now they can just look at all the other issues. And um, so I made them 15 prototypes and then uh, I reached out to Ed Kramer with his Daytron and set them up with Ed, and he's going to be making the, uh, the lion's share of them from here on out on a much faster machine. Uh, the Mori is fast in spindle and acceleration, but at the end of the day, uh, something like a Daytron is going to do it way quicker than I could ever do it.
So I'm glad it seemed to have worked out for everybody that way. So I have a few questions. Um, when you treated it as a, a mold and you had a top half and a bottom half, and then mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll post up some sort of teaching um, or following aid of this, but did you have to pin them, pin those two halves together or was uh, screw tolerance and sort of kind of a manual fitment of each enough? So there's a lot of topography on these. Um, the center tends to be quite higher than the outlying edges. So since I had all this height I was mowing down, I went ahead and on one side, I created two bosses, which are uh, 0.1875 inches, which uh, that's close to five millimeters. And then on the opposite side, there's two bores, which are 25 microns bigger. So it's it's kind of a sloppy fit, and, you know, it goes together, but um, it, it just created any one less thing I had to do. I didn't have to press in dowels at the end of the cycle. And, um, by, f- by no means is this a precision problem in the manufacturing sense of the feeder. Uh, the precision was actually in the end use and how we, we took and we made a very precise process out of what was very a crude process. And I kind of debated if this was, you know, what I wanted to submit for this week's podcast, but, um, the precision doesn't necessarily mean making something precise. It Mm -hmm. could also be a process in my opinion. That's, that's my second question really. Um, your, your end user has a problem, which is, you know, what, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. And, um, in solving that problem, did you have to do a lot of the detective work or was that a collaboration amongst a lot of people? Well, it was mainly myself and the owner of this uh, sewing company. Um, And it was kind of frustrating because it's a lot of like hands-on kind of getting your head in the action type stuff. But at the same time, I wanted there to be some distance, obviously. So I don't feel this was developed as quickly and as painlessly as past projects because... The flow of information was halted, in my opinion, by you know this being mostly done distantly. Um, so, so there was a lot of back and forth, little little changes. Like the other day, he had me move a wall twelve thousandths of an inch, um, which is about half a millimeter. And I, I'm dubious that's going to have much effect in fabric, but um, at the same time, I didn't get the context because I wasn't there. You know, it may have very well been a, an important change, but when I'm just kind of getting a photo in an email with an area highlighted, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't know if that's going to do anything. But uh, so putting up these barriers makes communication very hard. And but uh, I, I think I think we're on the tail end of the the development, and uh, yeah, start going they can have somebody make a lot of them i see a lot of parallels in watchmaking uh because even though the end product a watch does have to be precise in its timekeeping ability um it's very difficult to translate one-to-one timekeeping precision to uh 
machine accuracy, machined accuracy. And more than that, mm. especially in the winding and the setting systems, you know, how, how the watch kind of feels to the user, it's even more difficult to nail down precision. And um, one thing that I'll say that has exponentially increased the, or sorry, decreased the R&D time is having a watchmaker that actually has a lot of experience with watches and um, the feel of how something is supposed to fit right next to you when you're making a machined part. Um, For all intents and purposes, I'm a machinist. I'm not really a watchmaker, even though I have formal training in it or informal training, vocational training. Um, But I lack completely that feel. And I feel like in many, many engineering issues, uh, that feel element is actually overlooked in the final, you know, when you when you look at the final product. And I think your sewing machine example is a perfect um, example of that, even though um, it might be like a low precision manufacturing operation that does not negate at all the precision required in the in the feel stage, right? Yeah, and I th- that was definitely one of the developmental issues is most of the feedback I was getting was from the owner of the company and uh, I don't think he's ran a sewing machine ever. <laughs> um, and so it would have been nice to kind of be in the trenches and actually talk to the people using it. Uh, sometimes you get some feature bloat on stuff. Like the, they're now developing some attachments to it to like act as guides to feed the material in. And I, you know, it might sound like a good idea to you or me, but people using it every day might just think, oh, I don't need that. I just eyeball it and it works fine. Um, so, but yeah, uh, I, I did my portion of it and uh, sold them the CAD models and uh, they're taking it from there. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay just kind of developing the project to a certain point and then moving on. Um, you have to be careful when you do project development like this, because ultimately I make money when my spindles turn and meeting intensive projects really hamper my ability to run spindles. And so I, they're kind of fun, these projects, but at the same time, if you allow them, they can become a little disruptive. Well, quite selfishly, I'll miss seeing the Instagram stories of these shiny aluminum parts that probably don't get often made in in your machines (laughs) no no and they probably if i'm being honest didn't have to be that shiny uh, (laughs) i wanted to really play on the mori with its on control smoothing parameters and see just how loose i can get something and and so i i held back four extra and I have them at various parameter settings so I could like see, oh, at this setting, mm. this sharp corner starts to round on a on a relatively low angle change. Mm. Uh, and just kind of see, have visual aids what those parameters do. Because in aluminum, the, the tool deflections are pretty low. So every issue on that surface is kinematic. Mm. And so it was, it was, it was a good learning situation so i was kind of glad to be able to do that but yeah that was this week's precision problem
All right, this next segment is our precision machine tool segment. Uh, this originally started as a new machine tool segment, uh, but we're going to move it more into esoteric or interesting overlooked machine tools. Uh, there's just a lot deeper well to draw from. So today is the Citizen VCO3, and it's a, quite an interesting lathe. Josh knows a lot about it, and I was introduced to this by Dan Rudolph a few weeks ago, and uh, I think there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah, the VCO3 is a very interesting lathe because it's made by Citizen, which is a sliding head um, manufacturer. And they're, they're sort of partnered with Miano as well. Um, but the VCO3, yeah, you can kind of tell what's a Miano machine and what's a Citizen machine. And the VCO3 is definitely a Citizen machine. Um, That's the first thing that stuck out to me. It's their only non-Swiss. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's their only non-sliding um, head sort of machine. I mean, they've got a couple of gantry feeders, which are um, more or less the same machine concept. Um, but... The, those like four machines are the only non-sliding head machines that Citizen produce. And I was sort of taken aback because I didn't understand where this fit into the market segment. And uh, it wasn't until I did some more research into it and looked at the technical specifications of the machine did I kind of realize that it was maybe overlooked is, is probably the best way to put it in the machine lineup. Um, a lot of the literature talks about its uh, high productivity and its uh, like LFV capability, which is um, fantastic technology in itself. Um, which is for those that don't know, mm -hmm. it's a, it's like a active chip breaking. That's a like a vibrating chip breaker, right? That's right. It's like a vibrating chip breaker that um, enables easy cutting of hard to machine. Well, uh, hard to machine only in their kind of um, chip formation materials. Uh, so I was, I, was, I was sort of looking through this um, catalog that they have of the machine and down at the very bottom, uh, something stood out and it stood out to Adam as well, which was that the roundness specification on the final part that came off the machine. So this is not the spindle run out. This is the roundness of the, the part itself was spec'd out as 0 0.18 microns. And uh, instantly I realized that yes, this was a production machine and yes, this was, you know, kind of um, uh, a high technology machine and its LFV capability. But beyond that, I think the fundamental core of the machine is an ultra high accuracy machine. And uh, you can sort of tell. Yeah, and I think looking at the kinematic frame, high accuracy is what they were going for. One of the things that jumped out to me is they removed the axis stack up. So most two axis lathes, the X sits on top of mm. Z. And this one, X is directly on the casting and the headstock slides. So wink, it is kind of a sliding headstock lathe in that respect, but not in the way that a Swiss lathe is yes. where there's a guide bushing and the tools, you know, are... This is this is still quite a different mm -hmm. beast, but uh, so both axes are bolted directly to the casting, and I, I think that would probably have some some pretty good effects on vibration and, and kinematic squareness to one another. 
Also, another thing that you can really control quite easily when your axes are separated is your temperature profile. Um, you can design the casting of the machine in a, in a slightly different way, maybe in a symmetrical way, or at least in a temperature symmetric way, uh, but also in a in a way that allows you to route plumbing for air and most importantly cooling directly to the parts that are moving. Uh, sometimes when you have axes on axes on axes, it becomes increasingly difficult to route cooling. And often you'll see that um, manufacturers just give up. They just say, oh, it's too difficult and we'll just compensate it out uh, after, after the fact. But uh, the machine seems to be quite thermally stable, which is um, a tenant of high accuracy. Yeah, and... Um I what what Danny brought it to my attention for was uh, how space conscious the design is. Um, it it has a fold up front door. It's about a, less than a meter wide, and he he was joking that it'd make a nice companion machine to my Mori, which um, I don't know that I'll ever have a, a lathe, but uh, if I do, it would be for hard turning punch inserts, um, possibly even carbide. And I think the only thing that could do that would be a very small, very tight two-axis lathe. And so something like this would certainly fit the bill. But like I said, I, I don't know if that's ever going to be in the cards for me. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a peculiar machine. It's got some things that make you wonder why it was built, um, for what application. And certainly hard turning, I think, is definitely one of, one of the applications. There's a couple of videos on YouTube of this machine and some other machines um in the in the family that they're loading what looks to be heat treated uh parts in that get finished turned and um it makes total sense if you can gantry load something you're always gonna get some sort of um repeatability that's stable especially with a high quality chuck and if you're turning all the critical features in one clamping you can get fantastic results um, with a standard guide bushing machine that citizen usually make that's not really a possibility and it seems to me and this is pure speculation it seems to me that they were sort of trying to edge into a market of hard turning and high precision to access work that the rest of their machines couldn't offer yeah uh, it in who's to say with citizen you know this I always wonder when a, a company steps out of their normal as to why they're doing it. Um, but yeah, knowing them, I, I certainly imagine this is like a high volume, like you said, gantry fed type system is what they were thinking of. But Miano does that quite well, don't they? I think so. Uh, honestly, I don't know too much about Miano. The, their machines are far too large for my parts, but um, from... From the outset, I think the largest market sector they're in is the kind of um, turret-based uh, three-axis machines with uh, axial and radial milling, so you can develop complex parts from bar. Um, they do obviously they do have chucker chucker machines mm -hmm. as well, but I don't think they're as common as their sort of bar-fed uh, fixed headstock machines. So this kind of it's an interesting machine, and it kind of got Josh and I's gears turning about 
high precision two axis lathes, which are hard turn capable. Um, now, the, obviously, the king of the heap is Hembrug with um, their hydrostatic way, hydrostatic spindle, too, I believe, correct? Mm hmm. Yes, that's right. And they are like the Kern Pyramid Nano of turning centers. Uh, just very, very, very stiff ways with the hydrostatic and um, excellent, excellent for hard turning. Um, so that's definitely near the top, but we were we were kind of more concerned with uh, something still in the normal lathe realm. Um, so some honorable mentions for in this VCO3 realm would be uh, Shaoblin has a CNC, it's the 302, and... I was looking at that, and it's kind of an interesting. You can you could spec a turret on it, but I think most people are buying them as gang tool lathes. But uh, it's also another one of those very low spindle run out and part run out type solutions. Um, and again, very space conscious. Um, this thing probably has a footprint not much bigger than your little Citizen uh, RO4, uh, and. I, Again, like I, I don't know that I'll ever have a lathe, but it would probably be something small like that, or this this uh, my or citizen, if that were the case. But uh, uh, another interesting one we found is Mazak has their Primos line, and this would be like the Primos fifty, and this is by far the most heavy of all these small ones. But uh, it's same footprint, little more depth to it, but. Uh, this is remarkably cheap from what I remember. I was talking to a guy at a trade show, and I think I think they're not too expensive, like sixty grand US. And uh, so that I know two axis lays, you can't do a ton of work on them in terms of uh, complexity, but that's a pretty cheap machine for being as accurate as it is. So if if you have the right type of work for it, I think that's very neat. It's not very often that accuracy and uh or at least precision and price sort of get lumped in the same winning pile uh and it it makes your gears turn in the sense that oh well if i can get a cheap two-axis machine maybe i can adjust my manufacturing process to leverage that machine's uh capabilities as to save money and um that's what i guess turned um turned my eye towards these machines, these two-axis high-precision machines as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, because even though my parts are complex um, that I would want to make on them, the price of finding a machine that could do them in one hit to the same level of accuracy uh, often makes it not worth it, if you know what I mean. Um, having a second operation in a milling machine is yes. becomes, you know, not that big of a deal. Well, one of the things I find interesting with the gang tool format, and I think Shoblin does a good job of illustrating this, is uh, you can put as many spindles on a gang tool lathe as you want, even at odd orientations like 30-degree angles. Uh, so if you do need some light milling and these spindles aren't very powerful this is like kind of swiss lathe size parts but on a gang tool these aren't hydraulic couplings with huge threads 
But uh, if you do need some light milling, it can still be achieved. Uh, no y-axis, obviously, but you know you're not totally locked into just turned parts uh, if you go with a gang tool lathe. That's right, and a lot of these machines have indexable c-axes as well. So uh, obviously, milling with a rotary axis and a stationary axis is never perfect, but um, often the parts that re that that are made on these machines they don't require the milling to be accurate. It's much more critical that the turning be accurate and the milling can be like you know a wrench flat or something like that so um, capability capability wise these two axis machines should never be thrown thrown away you know personally i would i would rather have work for and run the best two axis lathe than kind of commodity work on a commodity y-axis subspindle lathe um I've, I've always found when you do like very high-end work and you have very high-end machines, not even in just my shop, but some of the other places I've worked, uh, your, your customer base is uh, a lot less transient. Um, you, they're not just always shopping for price and um, they, they tend to establish a relationship with you more because of your specialization. But that's a, that's a different subject. <laughs> Yeah, verging into the business of, of, of this, this whole precision problem. <laughs> Which I try not to talk about. I don't feel at all qualified. So, Speaking of which, later today, Dan Rudolph and I will be doing a business webinar on starting a machine <laughs> shop so. with Firetrace. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Uh, I'll definitely tune into that. Yeah, it's a, a good opportunity. Like, don't tune in for me because Dan's got just a really amazing setup over there. And I, I think he's kind of, you know, my goal in terms of he has his family working with him, uh, no employees, uh, just very, very tight operation he runs. And, and that's kind of what I aspire for. Um, the problem is it seems like a lot of his success comes from the ability to automate these higher volume projects. And in my line of work, I really don't see much volume. So I, I, I don't know that I'll ever have a shop that looks like his, but uh, it always impresses me. I sure wish I had a shop that looked like his. That's for certain. <laughs> and who knows, when Skynet finally occurs, um, all the robots, when they come down to, to Sydney, I might actually just welcome them in and, and try, to, try to get them to work for me like Dan does. That concludes episode two of the Precision Microcast. Thank you all for tuning in. I had an absolute blast recording this episode. Talking with Adam is so much fun, and I just hope you guys enjoyed listening to us ramble on about precision. If you want to stay in touch with us, follow us on the.precision.microcast on Instagram. And that's where we'll post all the teaching aids and little photos and snippets that go along with this episode. Thank you once again and tune in in two weeks time. Bye. Mm -hmm.